Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Real Reflections podcast. It's the podcast where the popcorn is always hot and the old movies are talked about a lot. I am your esteemed host, Wow. For today's episode, we're going to delve into the horror genre for a little bit. And we're going to talk about a uh, lost 70s classic. And here's a snippet of what we're going to discuss. That's right, we are going to be discussing the 1979 film Phantasm. And not only are we going to discuss the Phantasm, but we are also going to talk about its main antagonist, the Tall Man, and how he seems to be lost amongst the uh, rest of the horror icons of the horror genre. So this podcast will actually contain spoilers from the first movie, So if you have not seen it, feel free to jump ahead or listen in if you've been curious. Otherwise, uh, please stay tuned because we're going to discuss the movie in detail. And we're also going to discuss the uh, status of the tall man. So for the spoilers, get ready in 3, 2, 1... Alright, the movie Phantasm starts off just like most of the horror movies of that era, which was the mid to late 70s, where there is a random couple engaging in sex. In a cemetery. (laughs) Most convenient of places. It is during their exchange that things take a turn for the worst. The woman who is billed as the Lady in Lavender, because that's the color of her dress, takes out a knife and stabs the man. Repeatedly. It is later on at the man's funeral that we also meet the primary protagonists, Jody and Mike. Jody is at Morningside Cemetery with his friend and bandmate, Reggie. They're paying their respects to their fallen friend and bandmate who is named Tommy. Tommy was the guy from the beginning of the movie. Mikey is uh, Jody's younger brother and he arrives at the cemetery on his dirt bike. He likes to hang back and spy on his uh, brother through a pair of binoculars. It's a dirty habit that he shows throughout the entire movie. He just can't seem to be uh, without his brother for more than two minutes at a time or something. It's after the funeral party separates that Mikey spies on the Morningside's uh, resident mortician, a man that they lovingly nicknamed the Tall Man. Mikey observes that the Tall Man can single-handedly pick up a fully loaded casket and actually put it in the back of a hearse without any sort of help of any kind. The fact that the man can actually do such a feat does actually creep Mike out a little bit, but doesn't raise any alarm at that point. Mike's more concerned at this point about uh, his brother Jody. Uh, <clears throat> his brother Jody, like, moving on with his life, probably pursuing his musical career or whatever. And Jody's afraid that he's just going to leave 
or Mike, sorry, Mike's afraid that Jody's going to leave him behind. And that concern has been throughout Mike's mind ever since his parents has passed away. And that was two years ago. That concern has also put uh, Mike on the uh, alert, and that also ignites his I gotta follow him everywhere phase. It's when Jody takes his uh, Plymouth Barracuda, a sweet black Plymouth Barracuda, by the way, to a local bar called Dune's Cantina that he picks up the blonde for a good time. Oddly enough, it's also the same blonde from the beginning of the movie. The one that killed Tommy earlier. And much like before, she seduces Jody in going into the cemetery. Perhaps for the same reason that she did for Tommy. We don't get to find that out because, as per usual, Mike is always following Jody. And he follows him to the cemetery. And what I feel is probably one of the weirdest parts of the movie where... The younger brother would want to see the older brother engage in sex. And he actually seems somewhat excited about it. I mean, I know it's probably because he gets to see the naked woman, but... eh. My whole question is, if he would have seen his brother naked, would he have turned away or would he have kept watching? I mean, I don't know. It's kind of weird, but I mean, you kind of ignore it because... After he seems to be enjoying what he sees, he gets creeped out of his hiding spot by a a little dwarf-like creature dressed in like a brown druid hood cloak thing. And this growling, snarling creature just chases him across the cemetery, which inadvertently also cock-blocks Jody from engaging any further. Which was probably for the best anyways, because, much like with Tommy, we know what would happen with Jody. So, when Jody catches up with Mike, he tries to explain to him what happened, what chased him out of there, and Jody didn't want to hear anything about it, you know, it's just nothing but a hallucination, or uh, maybe a superstition, or casual fear, who knows. But it's while Jody worries about the blonde that he lost in the cemetery. Mike, who is overly suspicious about the Morningside Cemetery grounds itself, has suspicions grow more after um, he walks the streets of his town, which I don't think it's ever mentioned what town they live in. But anyways, whenever he walks the streets of the town, he sees the tall man, walking across the, walking down the other side, and it's when he walks right beside Reggie's ice cream truck that he freezes in like a corner cat standstill sort of thing, where the cold air of the ice cream truck just kind of puts him in a bit of a trance, you know, it's like he's trying to block it or fight it or, it's kind of hard to describe. They also, it also, um, Michael's also got the fear because, um, earlier on too, he had, uh, 
one of the dwarves actually dropped the uh, Plymouth Barracuda on him as he was working on it from underneath. So his, he's got the suspicions to grow that he wants to go check out Morningside Mortuary one more time just to see what's actually going on there. So he decides to arm himself with a Rambo-like army knife and a lighter. As he investigates the uh, cemetery, or the, sorry, not the cemetery, the uh, mortuary itself, his investigation is cut short by a caretaker and the tall man. Caretaker is... I don't know if he's really like a zombie or... He's definitely not one of the dwarfs. But we'll explain the difference between those two in a little bit. But anyways, there's like a full-grown caretaker and the tall man that kind of interrupt him a little bit. You see them for a brief second before uh, Mike comes out of hiding to investigate again. It's around the time where he starts walking the halls of the mortuary that he runs into the uh, main main weapon of the tall man, and that is a flying silver sphere. And what Mike realizes, the silver sphere actually has two carved blades on both ends of it that actually dig into the forehead with a drill on the middle that actually drills into the center of their head or the brain, however you want to put it. And what happens is it actually shoots out the liquid from the brain and spills it all over the floor. Well, this action actually happens to the caretaker who has a silver sphere dig into his head and drill into his brain, and it shoots out blood. But what's weird is, is all the tall man's victims in future films, ones that he's taken over, usually have yellow blood of some sort. So that's where I'm kind of curious if the caretaker is actually paid human or whatnot. But caretaker's dead, and Mike gets chased out of the mortuary by the tall man. But as he slams the door shut to help him get away a lot easier, he uh, slams fingers of the doorman's or the tall man into the door, and he actually cuts one, or cuts the fingers off. But the strange thing that he notices is the uh, fact that the fingers still move and they are covered in the yellow blood, like I'd mentioned earlier. Mike decides that he wants to prove that the tall man is up to something. And something strange is going on in Morningside, so he decides to keep one of the fingers, put it in a little collective box. And it's that finger that he uses to show Jody still moving inside the box. With that bit of evidence, Jody decides, okay, you know what? We're going to take it to the local authority, and we're just going to, we're going to see what they can do about it. But before they could even take it to the sheriff, um, sorry, the uh, finger had actually spawned into a black-like creature. I don't know if it's like a fly or a, like a big black. It was a big black bug of some kind with big bright red eyes, and it goes around or it tries to attack uh, Mike at first. They catch it in his jean jacket, and they shove it into a garbage disposal to try to kill it but that doesn't work out as they and Joe or not Joe 
you know, Mike, Jody, and Reggie find out that the bug is still alive, and they shove it back into the garbage disposal, but they also shove a knife into it, stabbing at it a few times to try to kill it. And that's where the extent of uh, some of Tall Man's power comes into play, too, is manipulation, turning the finger into a black bug. Tall Man, of course, he's also got telekinetic powers, and on top of the superhuman strength. But that's where things kind of pick up on the action side of it. Because it's there that uh, they decide to take action on uh, what could possibly be the tall man. Jody had decided that uh, he wants to leave his brother Mike at home. And he decides to load up a pump action rifle with the strict instructions that you don't point at a person unless you intend to shoot at him. And you don't shoot at him unless you intend to kill him. And I'm sure that's probably not just like a home intruder or anybody in general. It's more or less just for the tall man or one of his minions. But I actually like that bit of a dialogue between the two. I thought that was pretty clever. But like I said, Jody decides that he's going to go up to the cemetery itself. And he wants to investigate just to see what the hell is going on. Jody doesn't actually make it as far as Mike did. Because he gets attacked by uh, one of the dwarfs. And it's during his exchange that he actually shoots and kills one of them. Well, like I said, he doesn't pursue any further. He decides to exit the cemetery. But he gets chased off the cemetery grounds by what seemingly is an unmanned, or an unmanned hearse. He's actually saved at the last minute by Mike, who shows up in the Barracuda. And it's there that we get, like, a, actually a wealth shot, uh, highway chase scene between the Plymouth Barracuda and the unmanned hearse where Jody actually takes his uh, pump action rifle and he proceeds to uh, I think he tries to shoot at the windshield first then he uh, shoots at the engine and it's after shooting at the engine he causes the hearse to crash into a nearby tree branch or a tree yeah tree and it's when they investigate, it's when they find out that the dwarf was actually, uh, one of the little demon dwarfs or whatever, zombie dwarfs, was uh, driving the hearse. But it's not just that, but the dwarf was actually their friend Tommy from earlier, who was driving the vehicle. He's all in zombified state and shrunk down to about two-thirds of his original size. So they decide to call Reggie and ask him to bring his ice cream truck because they want to use it to store the dead body of Tommy. And I guess an ice cream truck, being it's got some freezer components in it to keep everything cool, is probably the best way to do it. So they load him in, and they drive back to uh, Jody and Mike's house. It's where they um, decide to come up with a plan. Mike was... Uh, <clears throat> Mike is to be taken to a friend's house in town that runs an antique shop. And these two girls were uh, going to watch over Mike while uh, Jody decides that he's going to be going back up to uh, Morningside again. And I'm thinking Jody or Reggie was going to help out but en route back to 
Jody's house, Reggie gets uh, attacked by was I do believe I don't think it was ever told, but it was Tommy's dead body. I guess Tommy wasn't really dead, or maybe a demon dwarf or whatever clinged on. It's never really described or explained what happened, because all you see is uh, Reggie's ice cream truck flipped over later on. But is after Mike gets freaked out by um, <clears throat> seeing an old antique photo of the tall man that actually moves. And he decides that he wants to be taken back home, that they run into the capsized truck that's empty. But it's while they also sit and wait that the, uh, the sister's car, I think they're sisters, the sister's car is uh, attacked by uh, a bunch of the uh, dwarfs. Mike decides that he uh, has to, or flees out the uh, back window and he runs back home. But it's while this is also taking place that Jody has a dream of the tall man in his little uh, mausoleum. And as he sees the tall man approaching, a bunch of zombified arms reach out, grab him, and pull him into a, cat, or a grave. So, I mean, that's... That pretty much sets up the climax of the movie. You know? Where, um... Mike returns home and he tells Jody the news of what happened, you know, Reggie's truck flipped over, the girls and him got attacked by the dwarfs, he minorly escaped, and it's where Jody decides he's going to make his last stand now, but he wants to keep Mikey safe, so he decides to lock him in his room and wedge it shut with a screwdriver. But uh, Mike is a little more resourceful than that. He actually manages to uh, MacGyver himself a tool using a hammer and a, a hammer, a shotgun shell, and I do believe tape to uh, blow a hole in his door to escape. Which actually I thought was kind of cool, but I'm not going to try it out to see if it works or not. And I don't think I'd recommend anybody trying it, just because I think it'd be a lot more lethal than it showed in the movie. <laughs> But anyways, it's as Mike escapes or tries to uh, get out of his house to help his brother out that he finds the tall man has actually been waiting for him the entire time and he actually grabs Mike by the collar and throws him in the back of a hearse to take him back to the cemetery. It's while that uh, Mike is actually in transit that he uh, uses uh, Jody's revolver that he took prior to leaving the house and he shoots out the back window and proceeds to shoot out the uh, back passenger tire of the hearse, which causes it to uh, run into uh, another tree. Could have been recycled stock footage. But either way, the hearse runs into another tree, but not before Mike decides, or Mike can actually jump out the back window. But. Jody had been into the mortuary earlier and he pulled out a casket. We don't really get to see what's in there. We don't know whose it is until Mike actually shows up and he checks on the cat or checks on the tomb itself. And we find out that it was actually uh, their father's casket. And it was empty. Pretty much pretty much um, 
guaranteeing what they fear, or at least what Mike feared, that uh, since their parents passed away two years prior, that could their parents have possibly been zombified like everyone else? Which, I guess that answer was pretty much given. But, as Mike was investigating the casket again, one of the Silver Spheres shows up. And, you know, as before, right before it could do anything to Mike, Jody shows up, using his pump-action rifle, and actually shoots at the sphere and blows it up. And, oddly enough, as Mike tells Jody that the casket was empty, they show, like, a moment of grief. You know, I'm sure that deep down inside, Jody probably knew that was going to be happen, or that was true. That's why he didn't really look in the casket, but like I said, they share that moment and that's about as good as it can get. It's at that moment where they want to, I think they try to escape, or they investigate further, that they are joined by Reggie, who claimed that he was hiding in a casket the entire time in the mortuary. And he saved the two, he saved a two girls that was running the uh, antique shop and a couple other strange girls before searching the mortuary himself. But it's when they uh, decide to check out a door at the end of a hallway or whatever that uh, they run into a room that's full of I guess little black caskets would probably be the best thing, or little capsules. They're like kegs, just spray-painted black. Let's go with capsules on that. That sounds a lot better to me. Little black capsules. But these capsules actually encompass the little dwarfs. And what we learn is these dwarves actually get sent through an interdimensional portal in the form of two upright silver poles. And the portal leads to a desolate red hot planet. And the only thing on the planet is uh, a bunch of the dead dwarfs. I guess they're working as slaves or something like that. You don't really see a whole lot of what they do because it looks like all they are is just walking in a line. But from what we gather in dialogue, they are actually slaves of the tall man doing his bidding. But as they uh, discover all this, the power and Mike actually gets yanked back into the cemetery because he was actually dangling right in limbo, I guess. But as they get yanked back into the cemetery and they discuss what they've found, the power goes out. And again, another series of threes happens. Mike, who uh, uses the lighter to uh, see, gets attacked by one of the dwarfs. Jody goes on the fence looking for Mike. And he's outside for some reason. I don't know how Jody got outside. And Reggie, on the other hand, he's still in the room. But he harkens back to the uh, time when him and Jody were playing their uh, instruments. And he uses a tuning fork to uh, tune up his uh, guitar. But he remembers that when you touch the two ends of the tuning fork at the same time, it stabilizes it. Well, he uses that knowledge to uh, tamper with the uh, poles or whatever 
the vibrating pole. That's what I forgot to mention. The poles themselves they emit like a vibrating sensation. So when he decides to place his hands on the poles themselves, they uh, they stop. But what he doesn't realize is that by doing so, he actually opens up a, a vortex or interdimensional vacuum, and it just starts sucking everything in all at once. And by that, I mean everything. The little capsule kegger thingies go flying in. Anything from the outside goes flying in. And that sets up the uh, final segments of it, of the movie itself. Because Reggie somehow manages to get out of the mortuary. And as he goes to the cemetery, he uh, gets stabbed by the lady in Lavender, who was actually hallucination of the tall man so you can add in, I don't know if that'd be part of his telekinetic ability or not so let's say mind manipulation is another power of his too so when Jody's, Jody and Mike discover that Reggie had been stabbed they uh, get in the barracuda and drive off but it's as after they do so that the mortuary itself turns all different shades of colors and just kind of disappears. And that's kind of where they decide that they want to make a final stand against the tall man, because they know that the tall man's still going to come after him. He's done it multiple times before. He'll do it again. So they discuss uh, an idea to use an old mine shaft in town that has at least a thousand foot drop on it. They're going to convince, or they're going to have old or tall man chase them to the mine shaft, rig it. So he falls in there and then lock it up tight. So he can't ever get out. So while Jody goes to prep that, the uh, tall man taunts Mike with a bunch of nightmare hallucinations, which he must overcome. You know, like, um, was it zombie hands popping up out of the muddy water? You know, stuff like that. Stuff that Mike was told earlier in the movie that he must overcome his fear. So when the tall man who was actually in pursuit chases after him, he actually falls into the shaft, and somehow Jody pushes a whole bunch of big boulders into the shaft from down down like a hillside or an embankment. He pushes them down and they somehow fall into the shaft. And these are big boulders too, so you'd think, how could this guy do it? But I mean, he does it and you feel good about it because you think it's going to be the end of the movie. And it, it would be the end of the movie for a typical one. But it takes a twist here. Because Mikey wakes up, he wakes up from a nightmare and he's laying in bed. You know, and that's where you realize that things are different. Because Reggie is actually still alive and talking with Mikey about his nightmare. And Reggie just breaks it all down for him that he's still suffering 
suffering from the loss of Jody, which happened, I guess, a week ago in a car wreck. So... The events that happened in the movie were pretty much all a nightmare of uh, Mikey's. And he's been coping with his brother's death ever since. So Reggie has this crazy idea that, you know what, they need to take a vacation, get out, have some fun, have some laughs. Mike's all for it. They decide to go pack up. So it's when Mike goes back to his room to pack up that he's, you see the tall man in the reflection. As Mike uh, realizes the tall man is actually real and not just a figment of his imagination, that he gets uh, yanked in through his uh, broken mirror by uh, disciples of the tall man. And the movie ends on a cliffhanger note. You know, what happens to Mike? Was the tall man real or not? We don't know. So that is how the Phantasms movie ends and how the series kind of picks up. Now, the Phantasm itself was released into the American theaters on March 28th in 1979. It was produced by the Avco Embassy Films Company, who, prior to this, had dabbled in more, um, I would say critically acclaimed in some way films like uh, The Graduate and um, Mel Brooks's The Producers. But they had also released the American version of uh, Godzilla. And they dubbed it the... uh, The American version was dubbed Godzilla King of the Monsters. Phantasm itself was greenlit thanks to the uh, success of uh, John Carpenter's Halloween and 1978 because that was a low budget horror movie and it had a lot of box office revenue coming its way so at that point I think a lot of horror films were starting to get green lit or at least they were ideally being sought after and the inspiration for the story itself had been um, actually a work of uh, novelist Ray Bradbury's Something Wicked This Way Comes and the sci-fi film from 1953, Invaders of Mars. Those were the some of the story intro, or story uh, inspirations for them. But the genesis of the story, or story itself had actually come to uh, director Don Coscarelli when he was a teenager. And oddly enough, it also came to him about the same way that... Uh, Mary Shelley had thought up the idea of her horror novella Frankenstein. They both had theirs when it came to them in dreams. So like I said, when Coscarelli was a teenager, it's not determined when he, how old he was, but when he was a teenager, he had this dream about uh, uh, being chased down an endless marble corridor by a chrome-colored sphere with a wicked nail or wicked needle or something like that whose sole purpose was to penetrate the skull. Which, that was the... um, The monster itself is the blueprint for what would end up being the primary weapon of the tall man 
in what's lovingly called the Flying Sphere... Flying Sphere Driller? I don't know. I think they had a nickname for it, but I'm not sure what it's called. But you know what... If you've seen the movie, you know what it is. And uh, Coscarelli decided that Phantasm would be his next project, theatrical project, after seeing viewers jump at a scene in his previous film called Kenny and Company. He also had heard that low-budget horror films actually can be rather profitable. Something that uh, his pre- previous two films exactly or weren't exactly, sadly enough, as it was to say, but I think it was the 70s, so everything was kind of sketchy at that time. So it was in 1977 that Coscarelli had rented a cabin in the mountains outside of uh, Los Angeles to focus on writing the story for Phantasm. And he'd spent there... For- about two weeks isolated in there just to kind of get the moody atmosphere of the movie that he wanted so when it came down to casting for the movie he had actually selected talent that he had already previously worked with and he worked with Angus Grimm who was the tall man on Jim the World's Greatest which was his first film that Coscarelli actually made when he was 18 years old. A. Michael Baldwin, who played uh, Mikey, and Reggie Bannister, who played Reggie, had actually worked with uh, Coscarelli on uh, Kenny and Company. But Bannister actually has the uh, more notoriety because he worked with uh, Coscarelli on both projects both Jim the World's Greatest and Red or Kenny and Company. So the funding itself was raised due in part thanks to uh, Coscarelli's dad and uh, I think doctors and lawyers with whom he already knew. So once the funding was raised, filming had started sometime in 1977 and to most accounts it lasted about a year as the filming itself only took place on the weekends. As Coscarelli found out that if you rent the equipment on a Friday, not only do you get to piggyback it for the whole weekend, but you also only have to pay for a whole day. So that was kind of ingenious on his behalf. So I guess post-production itself lasted about six to eight weeks and Phantasm had its first test screening and sadly enough it actually received poor results so I'm not sure on this part if the original screening that was showed for an audience was the original draft but if so the original cut of Phantasm was somewhere close to three hours long. So I'm not sure if that's the part that he had edited down, which was mostly, I guess, character development. Something he felt, you know, didn't really help the movie flow a little bit. And some of the stuff you can actually, some of the cut material, I think, does actually show up in uh, Phantasm 4, or Phantasm Oblivion, however you want to call it. So I could kind of see where some of the trim material would be needed. 
if that was the case. So, uh, after a somewhat lengthy and troubled shoot and editorial setbacks, Phantasm did manage to get its release. And the end result was a worldwide gross of about $22 million. And if you set that against its uh, budget, which was roughly $300,000, you could definitely say the Phantasm was a bit of a financial success, but not as you know wildly successful as the Halloween film, which I think a lot of studios were kind of banking on at that point, but success is success in my opinion. But much like Halloween, Phantasm actually found uh, another life in... Uh, cult movie status thanks to tape trading probably some uh, cable TV spots here and there when it first came on TV you know word of mouth on the internet social media stuff like that the movie itself does get a second life but it's also here that brings up another interesting question when uh you think of the horror movies who do you usually think of and most of the times you will hear an answer as um, well your top five would probably uh, be Jason Voorhees uh, Freddy Krueger Chucky Ghostface uh, probably Leatherface maybe Leprechaun Norman Bates but you don't... I don't think you'll ever hear the tall man as an answer. If so, it'd be very rare. Like, say, one out of a thousand. And that's pretty much going to be the topic that we're going to discuss as well. Is... How the tall man gets lost... Amongst the uh, minor plethora of horror icons. And it's... Kind of weird because... He's a part of a cult classic horror film. And I get that. But... You think with it having a little bit of success as it does, or did, that you think that he would get some sort of recognition. Not just amongst the diehard fans, but overall. But I analyzed it a little bit, and here's where I've kind of narrowed it down to in some small way that he should probably get some recognition, okay? And here's where we sway off, okay? Every horror icon has an iconic weapon of some sort, okay? Leatherface had the chainsaw. Jason Voorhees has a machete. Freddy Krueger has his little bladed glove. And I guess you could even say uh, Michael Myers has his little kitchen knife that he always uses. The tall man has his flying sphere. Which, I mean, in retrospect, that weapon actually does look a lot more impressive than a chainsaw or a machete. Granted, almost mechanically impossible, but still. Really cool to see on screen. But then let's look at his... What's the overall goal? Because a lot of the killers sometimes have goals, like Michael Myers is pursuing... Lori Strode 
Jason Voorhees doesn't want sex in his camp. Uh, Freddy Krueger just wants to haunt your dreams. Actually, the tall man, if you think about it, has a long-term goal. And the only thing I can really think of is he pursues... I want to say he pursues anybody that really knows who he is, but it seems like his genuine pursuit is always Mike. I think because Mike probably discovered who he was originally. So, like, that's pretty much what it is. I think Tall Man just pursues Mike to try to sway him over to his side, which happens later on in the series, but in the original film, he pursues Mike because Mike knows. Which, in turn, you know, forces his brother Jody into action, and then, to some extent, but later on in the series, Reggie, who becomes more or less the main protagonist of the series. But, yeah... Pretty much all I could really figure on the tall man's goal is to chase after Mike. But he's one of the few rare horror icons that actually has a some uniqueness to him because he hails from an interdimensional planet who seems to be intention intent on taking over Earth and using zombified corpses as his minions to do so. So, he he's an interdimensional entity of some sort, but he takes the form of an older man. An older, taller man. And because he's an entity from a hot planet, he's afraid of the cold. And that's... He's got a lot of unique attributes to him, which you think would have him ranked up there with some of the greatest, but that's where we're also going to go into his lack of appearance. And it was during the horror boom period that you think that another Phantasm film could have gotten greenlit. You know, I'm talking about the, uh, let's say, 80 to 83, 84 when slasher films were coming out left and right. You know, I mean, Halloween had its sequel come out in, what, 81? Uh, Friday the 13th was working on sequels left and right. What was it? There was, like, Prowler, Final Exam. And there was, like, oh, I think about what, uh, the Weinstein Brothers came out with The Burning. It seemed like every time you looked in the movies... Uh, credits of some sort, trailers, there was always a horror movie coming up because those were always deemed to be the most popular. And slasher films were always picking up momentum. So, why didn't Phantasm have a follow-up to pick up on, or to pick up on the popularity of horror films? And I think it's due in part to the fact that Coscarelli kind of wanted to branch out a little bit more. And he felt that Phantasm itself was standalone enough. He didn't want to do a sequel. So in 82, he released Beastmaster, which was, I guess, a sword and sorcery fantasy tale. Uh, 
I have not seen it, so I can't really say if it's any good or not. But, like I said, it's just... When you have icons like Jason Voorhees and Freddy Krueger and Jack Torrance scaring up audiences, and as much as I know he didn't want to do a follow-up to it or probably didn't have the blueprint in his head to do a follow-up at that point, Phantasm would have fit in a little bit. Especially the take on the follow-up. We're going to get there. But from the time the... 79 original came out to the time the Phantasm 2 was actually greenlit or I should say Coscarelli was convinced to write that uh, there was at least a nine year gap and in that nine year gap was the slasher booms rise and fall sadly enough because you got introduced to Jason Voorhees, who had a horror film come out, what? Either every year or every other year? Let's see. First one came out in 80, and then by 88, I think there's at least six films. Six, seven, Friday the 13th. And then, of course, in 84, you had Freddy Krueger and A Nightmare on Elm Street. And he, much like Friday the 13th series got greenlit a film one right after the other. So by 88, he had at least three on three in the Nightmare on Elm Street series. Then, of course, you add in uh, Pinhead and the Hellraiser films. And then while Chucky wasn't exactly uh, released yet, I mean, I'm sure there was probably some buzz about a killer doll walking around and all that walking around slaying people that by the time I think 85 or 86 might have come around I think people were kind of getting tired of horror sequels and probably for the most part slasher films in general so I think that was kind of a a setback for Phantasm 2 because it was released out of its prime market and it was done so it was done so because there was no interest in it I don't know if he tried coming up with ideas and they got rejected prior to or maybe he just didn't have an idea for Phantasm 2 he probably did feel that in and in itself it was a standalone movie but somehow, in some way, he got convinced to do a sequel. And Phantasm 2 itself was released in the summer of 88. I think it was July of 88. Which you think would be prime movie-going times for a movie like that. But I think it managed to make back a little bit of money, but not a whole lot. Which kind of pissed off Universal Studios, but... They also did a lot of meddling to the movie itself. But we're not gonna... I'm not gonna talk about Phantasm 2. That'll come out at a later time. So, could the nine-year 
difference gap be another reason why the tall man got lost because outside of Michael Myers, tall man was kind of the only iconic figure at the time of Phantasm's release. So between 79 and 88, you've had more memorable characters coming out in Leatherface, Freddy Krueger, Chucky, Pinhead, you know, characters that, uh, more recognizable. I mean, probably due to the fact that, okay, well, Freddy Krueger's got his little bladed glove. Jason Voorhees has his hockey mask. Pinhead's got those little needles popping out of his head. You know, those little, little snippets that help you remember who the characters are. And the tall man's just remembered for being a tall old man that wears a black suit. You know, I mean, there was nothing to really help him stand out. <laughs> nothing to really help him stand out in the crowd in general. But I have a feeling if they could have released a Phantasm 2 film somewhere within that 80 to 83 range, you could have probably picked up some of the horror film momentum at that point. But 88 came and went, so did Phantasm 2. But let's look at his iconic look. I mean, like I said, Tall Man is nothing more than an old man with a scowl and a lumbering walk with a black mortician suit. There's nothing too iconic about him. He looks like an everyday Joe. It's pretty much where we're going at. You know, it's not like uh, Freddy Krueger with a fedora and a Christmas sweater and burnt skin and bladed glove. Or, um, well, Jason Voorhees and what? <laughs> Six or seven costume changes, like one for every movie that he, at least he appeared in. Uh, then there is, well, Michael Myers himself has always been partial to the blue jumpsuit and um, painted white William Shatner mask. Because to me, it just seems like when you want to come up with a horror movie, when you think of the killer, you got to think of a distinct look. You know, something that would look cool on a cover. And it would kind of instill fear in the hearts of uh, the viewer. And while the tall man himself does look cool on the cover of the VHSs and DVDs, Blu-rays and stuff like that. You just don't really get the the intimidation factor to who the tall man is. And I think that's due in part that you know that he's not from Earth. He might have been inspired by someone who might have met the character. You know, like, say, uh, whatever the creature himself is. Say that he met the inspiration for his, um, his skin. Who was actually a character named Jebediah Morningside. Which you learn about in, um, Phantasm Oblivion. So let's say Jebediah runs into this entity. The entity might, might have killed him then taken over his body 
like I said, you don't know this because it never really gets explained. So let's say the entity could have been something completely different. You know, something to have some sort of intimidation factor to them. But you never know. So that's where I think the tall man kind of falls short a little bit. You know, he doesn't really have that that snappy oh, he's so weird looking or well, I'm going to wake up from uh, dreams because this thing could be chasing me, sort of. Moment, you know, I mean that I think is his only downfall is the fact that he just he looks too average and nothing to help him really stand out in the crowd. If he is an alien of some sort, maybe he toyed with that just a little bit. I mean, they did it with the little dwarf thingies. You know, they turned them into zombies or whatever. They were actually zombified, dug-up corpses. So, I mean, I think they could have worked with that just a little bit on what the tall man could have been. But maybe that's part of the mystique, too, is you don't know what the tall man thing that we could uh, talk about is the uh, reason why he doesn't get the iconic status enough is uh, maybe limited uh, limited exposure and by that I'm talking about um, well let's say when you go to uh, watch cable TV in October around late September early October and AMC, I think, runs their Horror Fest. Fright Fest. I think it's Fright Fest. I'm not 100% sure. But when they run that, they always show a lot of horror movies. Now, you'd think that Phantasm would fit into that category a little bit. While not completely a slasher movie like they like to show. So Phantasm, I think, more or less runs in the borderline area of sci-fi, supernatural horror. So you think it would fit into their catalog of horror films to want to show. Unfortunately, and I'm not always tuned into TV to find out, but in the years that I have actually watched, I have never seen Phantasm advertised or broadcast. That's not saying that I didn't miss it. I've just never seen it. And as of this recording, you can actually watch the movie on, uh, for actually for free, on uh, some streaming sites. Like, uh, well, Tubi is one of them, and uh, Plex. So it's weird because you think that. Uh, Phantasm would uh, get some sort of recognition on cable sites around the Halloween time, but it doesn't. I think that also affects the uh, tall man's status quo as a horror icon as well. His lack of exposure on pay TV. With, uh, With that being said, I think you should honestly go out 
and give Phantasm a try because it's an interesting watch. While not as bloody as you would hope it to be, it is captivating enough to keep your attention. And it also shows you what a director can do when he sets his mind to it, even with a short budget. It's a recommendation even for the casual horror viewer. And for someone that wants to delve into the horror genre for the first time. Well, this is going to end this episode of the Real Reflections podcast. I would like to uh, thank you for your time. And I hope you tune in to the next episode. So until then, please stay tuned for the coming attractions. Mm-hmm.